I had one of those YouTube experiences where somebody sent me a, a somebody sent me a link to a video with the "Is this true?" question mark question mark exclamation point question mark question mark you know no 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 about twelve of them and and I go click on this link and it's a guy that's doing an exegetical study of the Bible of a specific verse okay and where he decides to end up is that basically through the use of really, really interesting scholarship. That, that that verse where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning at the end of the 72, that somehow he has said that Jesus has named the Antichrist and it's Barack Obama. And I thought, I paused for a really long time as to what my response would be. Okay. There was a there was a definite no that was going to happen like immediately right at the front, probably with a few exclamation points after it. But but then it was like, what what do I add? Like like no, and stop using the internet. Like no, and and go outside. You know, no. I I, I didn't know what to add. And finally, I was just like, no. Not true. Not even close to true. This man is not a scholar. Um, you know, I, it, like just not, not. He's not a scholar, but he's not. He's doing it wrong. Um, anyway, but those things come across. Those things come across my my email more than you'd think. Um, and and I, you know what? Honestly, like, and this one was not okay. So I don't want to bag on my dad, but like some of them are from my dad. Like he'll he'll send out these he'll send out these letter you know like these things that he's gotten as a forward and and send them out to people and be like. Can you believe this? You know, and, and it's either politically charged or socially charged or whatever. And and he's got a friend named Jeff Marchant that it he feels that it's his solemn duty to go and check Snopes immediately as soon as Dad sends something out, and then like reply all to everybody else and be like, "It's a fake. It's not true. Disregard." You know, and everything and. And it's interesting to me that we live in both, like, the Photoshop generation and the Snopes generation now. We're, like, we live in a generation where it is, in a time and a space where it is easier to fabricate the outrageous. It, it, is, it, is, it is increasingly easy to manufacture the outrageous. Um, if you look at the success of pursuits like the Blair Witch Project and reality TV, being able to fabricate a false reality with just enough pseudo-accuracy to make it at least initially convincing or at least entertaining enough for us to suspend reality long enough to believe in it for a little while. Okay? It's becoming increasingly easy to do that. Whether it's visual images like, again, like, like Photoshop and, and even what that's done to our image of what humanity looks like in marketing and things of that nature. But it's also become easier for us to be critical as well. It's, and it's actually become more critical, I think, for us to be critical. There's a morass of information coming our way today, and that in and of itself may be a significant problem, but that's another sermon. Um, we have to tighten our filters, though. We have to tighten them further in order not to be swept away in the flood of information or being tossed back and forth between the accurate and the inaccurate. It's, it's necessary for us to be critically minded because there are so many things that are trying to come in and take our minds and our thoughts captive. Yet at the same time, I wonder what that does to the conversation of faith. 
how do we translate the need for a critical eye and the importance of evidence to explaining and incorporating something that's beyond our capacity to understand? Things like the resurrection of Jesus. Like the significance of his atonement and the sanctification that he provides through his death and through his burial and the new life through resurrection. These things that are, that are concepts that are way beyond simple evidence. They are so much bigger than my understanding of how that works. I can talk to you about how it works, but I can't nail it all down. And, and I wonder, do we wage, you know, how do we, how do we respond to that? Do we wage battles of definition and apologetics? Do we resign ourselves to this postmodern pervasive agnosticism about everything like we just can't know any of it okay like I, I hear people responding that way as well and then I, on the other camp I hear people just still trying to like nail every single bit of it down and getting into lots of fruitless arguments over it and I'll be honest I don't know how best to respond to that but I think that's the seminal core of faith what do we do with the relationship of trust and the evidence that's there in regard to this alternate reality and this experience of power that we find in the New Testament around Jesus. What are we supposed to do with it? I believe that seeking some resolution in that, this resolution in the tension of something being beyond my understanding and yet able for me to grasp a little bit, that is one of the reasons that John includes this story in our reading today about Jesus and Thomas. To show us that belief... And evidence are linked, but that it's not an easy question to answer. It's not as simple as saying I can know, and it's not as simple as saying I can't know. It's, what it is is it's the, it's the questing and the searching and what Jesus does in the questing and the searching. I remember lessons in devos when I was a kid that used to use Thomas as like a punching bag. Okay? Don't be like Thomas. Thomas was holding out on Jesus until he had proof. We're better than that. Stop doubting and believe, okay? Like, I remember those. And I, and I don't think that John puts this story in here so that we can bully Thomas around, okay? I, I, have, a, I have a different reading of that, okay? But it's pretty easy to do that if we take the story by itself because we miss that the entire chapter of John, John chapter 20, that entire thing is a mix of examples of people coming to terms with the resurrected reality of Jesus. There are five different scenarios in this chapter about people coming to a conclusion, coming to resolution, coming to belief, and coming to trust, and the evidence that, that, that Jesus supplies in order to do that. Okay, and, and, and Thomas is just one of those stories. And so we can't really understand Thomas's story without looking at the entire chapter of John there, okay? So our first story, our first example is of the other disciple in Peter in, in the first 10 verses of John 20. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, she sees the stone removed, and she assumes the worst. That the powers that be will not even let Jesus rest in his death, that they have exhumed the body to further despoil and discredit him. Or, or, just, or just to say he doesn't deserve to be buried in a nice tomb. He's a criminal that was crucified. And so we're going to go throw him in the common grave with all, this, with all the criminals and the sinners. Okay. So she assumes the worst. And she runs back to tell the disciples. He's not there. Okay. Again, there is no 
in, in Mary's first thing, there is no anticipation that something greater has happened than just somebody's messed with Jesus' body. And, the two, and, and so these two disciples, Peter and this other disciple, who might that be? We, we don't know. Most people think John's referring to himself in third person. Some think that it might be Lazarus or, or somebody else, but we don't know. That's not really the important part. The point is, is that these two take off running to go see what's going on. They, re, they respond to this crisis by saying, we need to know more. And so they go and they move out. And, and obviously, whoever this other disciple is, they've done their cardio, so they totally outpace Peter and they get there first. Okay? And now we have our first distinction of receptivity to the resurrected Jesus because while one disciple exercises caution and marvels from the outside, Peter runs headlong into the tomb. That's typical. Makes sense. Okay. And, and sees that Jesus has not only disappeared, but someone's done the laundry too. There are the grave clothes. They're folded up all nice and neat. There's the head covering shroud, and it's folded up all nice and neat next to it. And here's the distinction. While Peter runs headlong into it, okay, the other disciple who's more cautious also comes in, now noting that Peter has not been ambushed by Romans or Sanhedrin or zombies or whatever. He goes in as well, and he sees the clothes, and he believes. This is interesting for me. That's enough for the other disciple. And there's no word on where Peter's at. I'm going to let Daniel handle that next week, though, okay? All right? Because he's got Peter. And I don't want to run over his sermon. That's bad, you know, right? But there's also this significant phrase that John inserts that shores up the point that we made out of Luke last week. Even these people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus are still in need of convincing the prophecies and the scriptures are not enough by themselves. They require the presence of the resurrected Jesus to be effective. Okay? And, and that may be something really important for us to take away. When we think that logic or reason or reading can win the day, that will not win the day with belief. What we need for belief is the presence of the resurrected Jesus. They needed it then. We need it now. You cannot think your way into being a devoted disciple. You must actually interact with and experience the resurrected Jesus. And for the other disciple, it's merely the reality that the clothes are there and the man is not. They would not have taken time to unwrap the body before hustling it off. Something else must have happened. And that triggers the wait. He said all this stuff about like rising the temple up in three days and all this. Oh, 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 that's enough. But that's not the only example because the next example is Mary herself. The revelation of the grave clothes sends the two disciples off, but she, arriving in her own narrative, she stays at the tomb. And a different revelation is now coming in a more concrete form. She peers inside the tomb, and she's not greeted by clothes. She's greeted by two messengers clothed in white in the place of the body. And they inquire as to the nature of her grief. And in that grief, she fails to recognize the supernatural significance of what's going on, which is perfectly acceptable in the state that she's in. 
she moves out from there that, you know, why are you crying? She thinks it's odd that there are these two messengers clothed in white, but she doesn't know who they are. But she's consumed by the grief, and so she misses that, but that's okay. Sometimes the evidence doesn't always make sense when we first encounter it. We have to process it through our own issues, okay? It takes time to process something as powerful as the resurrected Jesus entering into our mess. And so she goes back out, and in spite of the messengers, she needs to continue to search. She needs to see the physical form of Jesus. And so Jesus is there. And though at first her grief keeps her from even seeing him for who he is. And he repeats the question of the messengers. And and she answers with this really jumbled mass of her own questions. Where have you taken him? Tell me what you've done with him. You know, like, I, you know, are you the gardener? You know, I mean, like, there's all this, this mass of questions. She's just speaking out of stream of consciousness, right? And, and it's not supposed to make sense. Those questions are not supposed to make sense because that's not why, that's not why John has this interaction happening. She's not meant to question or, or logic her way in. You know what needs to happen? She needs to hear the sound of her name on the voice of her master. And when he stops her with Mary, the pieces click together. And her master calls her by name, and it cuts through the doubt, and it cuts through the questions, and it cuts through the grief. And this revelation is enough. She knows him, whether or not she actually touches him, because there's varying views on whether Jesus responds to like, you know, don't, don't lay hands on me kind of thing, is that she's already holding on to him, or she's getting ready to, or whatever. But the point is, is she doesn't even need to touch him. It's the sound of his voice on her ear, more substantial than the grave clothes, but less substantial than what's to come. But that's enough. Her belief is cemented in the calling of her master. And the sound of him saying her name in her ear. That's enough. And now, instead of being a questioner, she now becomes the bearer of a message of a deeper revelation. Of actually seeing Jesus, hearing his voice, speaking her name. She goes back to the disciples and says, I've seen the Lord. And so we've got two very, very different types of revelation. Two very different ways of coming to belief here already. One that's much more intimate than the other. One is just simple, like, the clothes are there, the man is not. That's enough. And then somebody else saying, no, 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 I need to hear the sound of my master calling my name. Those are two very, very different ways of coming to belief. But they are both grounded in somebody who's seeking. Again, I'll say what I said last week about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Jesus doesn't waste his time after the resurrection appearing to people who don't care. He does not go to Pilate. He does not go to Herod. He does not go to the Sanhedrin. He doesn't go to the crowds. He goes to the disciples. He goes to those who are actually working on faith, seeking meaning, and provides what they need in order to believe. And so a lot of times we have to ask ourselves, if we've got people that are saying, ah, well, the evidence is there and I just don't know if I can handle it. The question that we have to come back to is, is like, is the evidence what you need in order to begin to trust? 
or are you already desiring faith seeking meaning and you are looking for the presence of Jesus to shore up that meaning that you're already seeking for because I think a lot of people are using the lack of evidence as a cop out to not seek and we got we got to come to that reality too that if I'm finding myself in a place where I'm like, oh, well, the evidence just doesn't add up, and so it's just not worth me even seeking. Well, then the problem is not the evidence. The problem is my heart condition. But again, these are not the end of the revelations. These have all been individual revelations, but now Jesus makes a public appearance later that evening on Easter evening. The disciples, now again, this could be the twelve. It could be a slightly larger group, but it's small enough for them to be hanging out and communing in a single room together. Okay, so it can't be too big, but it is a public communal revelation. Okay, that can be corroborated by lots of people. Now, they've heard the revelation of the two disciples. They've heard the revelation of Mary, and yet now another revelation is coming. And as we've said before, there are numerous emotions, and there are many reasons that they're assembled away in this room together. Okay, I am sure that there is a lot of fear. Okay, you, you, you take down the leader of a movement, now we're going to mop up all the other people. Okay? It may just be overwhelming distress. I can't believe, like, only a week ago, we were hailing this guy with hosannas and palm branches, and now he's been dead for, like, three days already. And I don't even know how to handle going through that emotional shift from here to here. And so I'm just kind of hiding away trying to regroup. And that may be what they're doing. It may also just be the need for collective encouragement and security. But now, Jesus is going to inject hope into the mix. Outrageous as it sounds, hope is knocking at the door. Or just phasing into their midst straight through the door, because that's what Jesus does. Okay? He doesn't knock on the door, he doesn't wait outside and say, can I come in? He just goes, hi, peace be with you. Okay? Now, let me just say something about that. Okay? Jesus' words are a standard Near Eastern greeting, Hebrew greeting of shalom. Okay, peace to you. But this becomes particularly meaningful considering the wishes of shalom. Okay, because shalom is so much more than peace. It is for the recipient to be whole and complete and full and at peace. And the funny thing is, is the irony is, is that I'm sure that Jesus' startling appearance right in the middle of them, saying, peace be with you, does not have that initial intended effect. Okay? And again, I think, I think that if the disciples are starting to come to a piece of how things are going to be now that their leader is dead, Jesus' revelation basically destroys their peace in order to replace it with a better peace. He destroys where they're complete. He completely dismantles where their completeness and where their comfort and where all that is so that he can bring a new, better peace, a new, better wholeness, a new, better comfort, a new, better reality. And how many of us, when we want to come to the experience of the resurrected Jesus want to come on our terms in a way where we can just kind of add him in and everything else just kind of like kind of stays the same but it gets better because Jesus is in it. That's not what's happening here. Okay? 
the experience with a resurrected Jesus blows up your reality. Why? Because you need a better reality. And Jesus is not going to let you hang on to the old reality. He wants you to have his reality, which is better. So he's going to go ahead and move in and destroy your peace while saying, peace be with you. I love that. And so he moves into the middle. And Jesus goes beyond merely appearing or speaking. He now shows his wounds. And it's proof positive. He's not a vision. He's not this ethereal, non-corporal. It's not like some, you know... He's not like some Jesus ghost, okay? Like, he really is there. And these are two prevalent arguments that John is trying to combat. Is this, is, is this defense of a Jesus who's bodily resurrected, as opposed to a Jesus who couldn't really be bodily resurrected. He either had to be, either, he either wasn't really there, he was just kind of projecting himself from, like, the heavenly realms, or he's just kind of like this ethereal spirit that doesn't actually have corporal form, because... Hellenistic thought, like Greek thought, you, I mean, the body is kind of, uh, you know, the spirit, that's what you want. You know, body, uh, you know. So Jesus just ditched the body and be spirit. And he's like, no, 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 no. He has to be bodily resurrected, otherwise the sacrifice doesn't mean anything anymore. And so he's combating this, but even more than that, the revelation of Jesus also accompanies a revelation of the redeemed identity of the disciples. They are now his image bearers. They are now his missionaries. They are now the messengers of God's forgiving reality in Jesus. And as he reveals these healing scars of atonement to them, it also charges them to turn around and reveal those healing scars to the rest of the world. And so this revelation of Jesus and this new peace also creates a new mission and a new vision and a new purpose for their living. They're not to proclaim him as the old Messiah king. They are now to proclaim him as the new resurrected Messiah that is conquering sin and death. So much bigger than what they had imagined. So much bigger than what they had planned. A new reality. And so now we come to our reading. And there is a couple of conspicuous things from the beginning. One of the things that we got to note, okay, if, if we can nail Thomas with one poor choice, it's this. He's not around. He isolates himself. And I don't know why he does, but he's not there when everybody else is there. And, and I don't know all the specifics that lead to his absence. We don't know. But what I do know is that the journey to Jerusalem and to the cross turn out exactly the way that Thomas expects them to be. We look at his statement of solidarity in John eleven sixteen. Let us also go that we may die with him. Okay? Thomas has a real uncanny clarity and devotion in this. Okay? He's, he's not, I mean, he's pessimistic too. Okay? But, but he's a realist. He knows what's going to happen. He, he's been actually listening to Jesus and he knows what's going to happen when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And he says, fine. If he's going to go to die, we'll go and die with him. And for Thomas, that reality has been winning the day since Friday. Now, yet in his choice to withdraw from the fellowship to deal with the grief, he misses the revelation of Jesus. And I'm not suggesting that we all need to be extroverts 
Not actually, not that we all have to be public processors and that we can't think about things privately and we can't go off and get things sorted out by ourselves. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is I think it's our tendency, especially in our society, who places such a high priority on being individuals, to stoically bear our own burdens, and that is harmful. It is not good for humanity to be alone. That is one of the first verses in the Bible as God is defining humanity. Okay? One of the basic functions of being human is being connected. And when we disconnect ourselves in the middle of grief or pain or doubt or discomfort, we not only do a disservice to ourselves by trying to bear burdens by ourselves, we also do a disservice to the rest of our community who needs to be about the business of being Christ. And so, in doing that, withdrawal has long been recognized as kind of a protection mechanism, kind of a low-functioning response. And, and as a church, we have to be asked to go against that natural inclination and pursue a higher level of resolve. We have to invite community into our doubt. We have to invite community into our struggle and into our stress. Healthy community, as the New Testament imagines it, is, a, is, is bodily health, right? Each member contributing and receiving in coordinated measure as we all grow up into Christ. And, we, and we, we have this reciprocity that leads to growth. That's how we're designed to work. And so Thomas is not weak because of his grief and struggles. One area that he becomes weak is because he keeps it to himself. The church has to be a place where those hurts and those griefs and even, yes, doubts are held in a safe environment and get borne by a community of believers, however big or small a circle that ends up being for us. For some of us, we can share our doubts with the, you know, like you've heard me share doubts publicly from the pulpit, okay? Not everybody does that. I get that. But do we even have those one or two people of the believers whom we are able to be free and share in that with because that is a necessary component of faith? I think it's also important to realize that Thomas's doubts aren't disconnected from reality and they aren't isolated. Many of the disciples doubt Jesus and they have to be convinced in some way. Thomas isn't asking for the outrageous when he hears their proclamation and says, I want that too. I want that revelation too. What you guys have, I want. Okay? It's, it's not cynicism. It's deep desire to personally experience the revelation of Jesus the way that others have. I don't think we're to judge Thomas inadequate because of his need for a concrete revelation because Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. In fact, what Jesus does in our reading by revealing makes for an even more powerful story because Jesus already knows what Thomas needs before Thomas can even ask him. He shows up. He says, peace to you again. Totally blows up Thomas's peace. And then invites him into a better piece by saying, you know what, I already know what you need. Here, come on in. Do you need to, do you need to put your fingers in the prints? Do you, need, do you need to place your hand in my side? Come closer and do that. Jesus doesn't berate Thomas for his need. He invites him closer. And I ask us, like as a church, when people are struggling, when people are doubting, when people are really wrestling with faith, do we hold them at arm's length in order to, like, you know, 
We, well, we want to respect their privacy. We want to respect their dignity. And we want to give them time to work it out. Is that a function of truly being caring and truly being considerate? Or is it just more comfortable to keep them out there? So that they can doubt and then when they get all their stuff together, they can come back in. That's not what Jesus does. That's not what we should do. The, the, the supernatural response to when someone is doubting is to invite them in closer. The supernatural response is intimacy, not isolation. And how do we embody that as Christians? That, that I think, is one of the big things that we need to hear from Jesus' interaction with Thomas. We've got to look at what Jesus says also in the light of the past three revelations. Spoken or unspoken, the goal of all of them is to bring that shalom, that wholeness, that peace, that completeness by overwhelming and shattering the previous pre-resurrection peace that the disciples were kind of tenuously holding on to. So when we read Jesus' proclamation, stop doubting and believe, it is not a chastisement of Thomas's doubt. It's an invitation even a proclamation of freedom for Thomas. Like, like, you don't have to hold on to the doubt anymore. My presence has come in to shatter that, that you may believe. Stop doubting and take a hold of the belief. And Thomas' response indicates a double virtue. First off, he's not willing to pretend belief or give lip service to an experience that he hasn't been immersed in yet. And I, I appreciate Thomas for that. How many of us just go with the crowd with, with, with belief, you know, toward Jesus or away from Jesus just because, oh, okay, fine. And we don't really work on it. Like Thomas is not willing to just say, okay, I believe this or okay, I don't believe that without really working on it. Without really immersing himself in it. And yet, the same honesty and forthrightness that he shows in his doubt, he also shows in his faith and in his belief because when he does believe he goes all the way jesus is not merely lord or god in theory he is my lord he is my god for thomas that allegiance is personal and it is owned and that's the response that jesus wants from us when he brings his presence into our lives he doesn't want us to believe about him just in theory he wants us to own it he wants it to be ours he doesn't want to be just the Lord or the God. He wants to be my Lord, my God. There's a great difference in those things for us, especially in how it translates into how we live our lives. When we get to the end of the reading, I think Jesus' last words kind of, if we're not careful again, they kind of create this hierarchy belief, or at least I've heard it in those punching bag devos I talked about earlier, okay? That there are those, us of course, who are more blessed than Thomas because we will trust without the evidence. And I don't think this is the case. Okay? I think that John shows quite the opposite. Whatever evidence is needed, Jesus supplies in the most personal and most powerful way possible in this chapter. For John, all faith is a gift from God and the means by which we get there are due to the grace from his hand. So if we're not promoting trust over evidence, what exactly is Jesus saying? And to find that out, we have to look at the fifth expression of resurrection in John. Because 
the commentary that he makes at the end in verses 30 and 31 are designed to be attached to the story of Thomas. We've separated them out a lot of times and made it this, you know, of, you know, Jesus did a whole lot of other things, but I wrote these things that you might believe. But think about it when you attach it right to what Jesus says to Thomas. He says, you know, blessed are you that you've seen and, you know, blessed are you you've seen and believe. Blessed also are those who have not seen and are able to believe. By the way, Jesus has done a whole lot of other things that aren't here. I've just written these things down as a way for you to believe. The whole purpose of John collecting all of these stories is so that we, the reader, can experience the same triumph of belief over doubt that everybody in chapter 20 gets to experience. John realizes, though, that that might not be enough. And so he reminds us of a simple fact. The revelation of Jesus is not limited to these stories. Nor to this book of the Gospel of John. Nor to the New Testament canon. The revelation of Jesus is bigger than these covers. It has to be. Because Jesus is writing stories in you and I of ways that we've encountered him in our lives that aren't sitting in these covers. They provide guidance for us, but ultimately what we need is the resurrected power of Jesus in our lives now, right? Not just here. We need to hear. We need to hear. And that's what John's really alluding to is he's saying, look, all these are is a template for the way that God is providing the evidence of his son to bring you to belief if you are seeking. These have been written that you might believe. And all these other stories that Jesus is writing in our lives are being written that we might believe. Jesus is still bringing the evidence of the resurrection by the power of the Spirit to those who are looking to believe, still as personally and still as powerfully as possible. I don't think there's any trust that doesn't require a little bit of evidence in our world, and yet no faith exists in our world that cannot move beyond the evidence to belief. There's a, there's, a, there's a tenuous existence of both of those, and it has to be that way. That tension needs to be there. That's what faith is about. And Thomas doesn't stand as a negative. I think he stands as a positive example of a disciple who fervently seeks, who is unwilling to settle for a pretend belief, and when Jesus reveals himself, he is a disciple who is willing to let his doubts find completion in a place that's greater than the evidence, in a peace that's greater than one that he can make for himself. Your and my stories of belief are a lot more diverse than just these four examples. But the one constant that I want us to come back to today, and the one, the one thing that I want us to hang on to in this gospel, is that Jesus is still meeting us where we are. Jesus is still shattering our inadequate peace. He is still bringing his better and fuller and more everlasting shalom through belief in his resurrection and through the redeemed reality that that brings. And so the question is, is, is one, are you seeking? Because even as a believer, we must still seek. If we ever come to a place where we're not seeking anymore, we should be very, very careful. 
But even more so, are we looking for a Jesus who is ready to come in and break apart our peace to bring us a better peace? Because that's what he says. He says, you know, he says, stop, stop existing in this fabricated peace that's, that's full of unanswered questions and come to a peace that's full of me. Where those questions are still there, but I am also there. And he invites us into that.